Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, and they may make a covenant with you that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we just come before you this morning to worship you, to worship your goodness. Lord, you are the Alpha and Omega. Lord, you are the everlasting, the unchanging Father. And we just bow before you humbly today. I pray that we would just have an open heart and an open mind, that we would just draw closer to you this morning. Be with Mark um, as he brings your word and explains it to us. And help him uh, not be his words, but it be the Holy Spirit working through him. Um, and that we may just learn a little bit more about you today, Father. Uh, I just thank you for your goodness uh, for this body of family gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Now, nah, it's a rhetorical question for the children who want to answer that. My dad dragged me here, right? Okay, I'm not asking about the mode of transportation. I'm not asking about the route that you drove to get here. I'm asking about the route from the moment of your birth to this moment right now. How did you get to this place, to the seat that you are sitting in, right at this moment. I think of all the events and all the people that had an impact on your life, the city or the country in which you were born in, the type of schooling that you received, the house or the apartment that you live in, your family members and your friends, who or what was behind that, that journey of your life. Now, one possible answer is myself. 
I plan my life. I set my alarm this morning in order to get to church on time. I chose my apartment. I chose my house. I chose the city that we're going to live in. I chose the job that I am in right now. But what about those things in life in which you have absolutely no control over? What about losing a job? What about tearing your ACL? (laughs) It's out of our control. What about losing a family member or someone that you love or your parents moving to another city or a state like I did eight years ago, almost eight years ago? Moving here to a city that I vowed when I was in college that I would never live in the Twin Cities. Side note, don't ever say that to God. He's got a great sense of humor. I'm very happy he moved us here, by the way. But who would have thunk? Not me. Or perhaps it's not us. Maybe it's just coincidence. Things just happened to work out that way by accident, and we did the best that we could with what we were given. But coincidence and even personal choice is not really a sufficient answer to much of life's circumstances. There's got to be something more. And there is something more. His name is Yahweh. His name is the Lord. His name is God. See, throughout First and Second Samuel, the sovereign and providential hand of God has been at work in every single circumstance. God's sovereignty is his authority over all things at all times. He is the Lord of all of creation, not just this half. Not everything except for Mark. All, his hand and his authority and his control and his power is over all things. And his providence means that he is actively at work within the history of humanity to move all things to his ultimate desire and will. We see this in both David and Saul's life, even using the sin of the people of Israel to bring about a kingdom in Israel. God's ways, and we, maybe you've heard this before, his ways are a mystery. God works in mysterious ways. His ways are mysterious. That doesn't mean that we can't ever understand like any aspect of what God is doing. We may understand parts of why he moves, but we may never fully understand the whys. Why did I get cancer? Why did we have to move? Why did this person or my friend leave me? Our passage today is the culmination of a long road for David. It's the last stretch of a long journey from young shepherd boy to king of all of Israel. And it's orchestrated by the sovereign and providential hand of God. Abner and Ishbosheth, they kind of had a falling out. We talked about this last week. Abner's actions of making himself strong in the house of Saul in a lot of different ways, is a direct threat to the kingship of Ishbosheth. 
So while a civil war rages between Judah and Israel, there's a mini civil war that's been waging between these two men for the power and the throne of Israel. Now remember, Ishbosheth is king of Israel, the ten tribes in the north. David is the king of Judah, uh, Judah in the south. And so there's this war between them. And when Ishbosheth calls Abner out for his treacherous actions against his throne, Abner then vows to support and put David on the throne. As I said last week, he kind of threw a little mini temper tantrum. How dare you accuse me of that? He never denies it, never says that he actually does it. But he doesn't fight it. He just says, fine then, now I'm your enemy. Well, Abner vows to support and put David on the throne just as the Lord has sworn to David. That's chapter 3, verse 9. And so he begins to fulfill that vow. Abner sends a message to David promising to bring all of Israel over him. And David agrees, but on one condition. His wife, Michael, daughter of Saul, must be returned to him. You see, while David was on the run from Saul, because Saul was trying to kill him, Saul gave Michael to another man. There was no divorce. She was just given to another guy, seemingly to hurt David personally and politically. So when we read the story about Michael's second husband, who's weeping and crying, yes, okay, it's hard. Feel bad for him. He married a married woman, and he knew that she was married. So don't feel too bad for him. Is that wrong to say that? But that's, that's the reality of it. We look at it and say, oh, how horrible of a situation. Now, Saul caused that. Sin was a part of that. Yes, it's a horrible situation, but the man knew that Michael was already married. And yet he still married her. Fast forward to today's passage, and David sends a message to Ishbosheth telling him, Hand over my wife. Her return, well, let's just say David's request wasn't done because he's so deeply in love with Michael. We'll see this later on. Their relationship is not the strongest, okay? So, why did David request that? Well, her return was actually a political move to strengthen his claim on Saul's throne. Now remember, we're, we're talking ancient times, not today. I'm not saying this is right, but back in the day, marriages to other kings strengthened the political power of the throne. And if he's going to take Saul's throne, he needs a connection to Saul's throne. It just strengthens it. And you say, well, isn't the Lord anointing enough? Yes, but it doesn't also help to have that political power with it. David's not an idiot. He knows what he's doing. The funny thing, maybe funny is not the right word. Ishbosheth does it. He's willing to hand over his own sister to strengthen David's claim to the throne. And it just reveals how weak he has become in his own kingdom. Now, in the meantime, Abner was working behind the scenes, having conversations with the elders of Israel, advising them to make David their king. After all, this is something they've been seeking to do, seeking to accomplish for quite a while, he says. You've been wanting to do this. Now's the time. Now's the time. And so 
While Israel begins the process of moving to David's side, Abner returns to David with the news. David receives him, receives him as, as uh, any would, as he would any emissary from an enemy seeking peace. David just wants peace in the kingdom. David agrees to allow Abner be, to be the go-between man between Israel and him, to create a covenant between him and the people of Israel. And so he allows Abner to leave in peace. That's super important. We're not going to touch on that today. We're going to talk about that next week because he leaves in peace, but it doesn't end up well for Abner. Now, it seems like the civil war is almost over. David's finally to, about to be crowned king. It's the final stretch. Finally. Finally, after seven years of war, David is going to take his rightful throne. And though there may be a sense of, well, it's about time, right? This is exactly how God has worked in the past to get things to this point in Israel's history. This is not something new. Seven years? That's nothing. Seven years is short in the time span of God. Throughout First and Second Samuel, the comment could be made like, really? That, that's how things are going to work out? Well, why would God do it that way? Why doesn't God just intervene and change everything? But that assumes that God hasn't been at work. God made Saul king to show the people of Israel what happens when they choose a king like all other nations. He says, you want a king? Fine, I'll give you a king and you'll regret it. And they did. Though Saul led Israel to many victories and lots of prosperity, his actions also led to pain and suffering and death. God could have chosen David first or even earlier than he did, but he didn't. God could have prevented Saul from trying to kill David, but he didn't. God could have killed Saul and made David king earlier, but he didn't. God could have prevented the seven years of civil war, but he didn't. God could have done all of these things and so much more, but he didn't. The Lord, though, was not passively standing by on the sidelines, wringing his hands, hoping everything works out. He was actively working through all of the pain and the suffering and the death in order to fulfill his promise to David. And I'll just say it this way. It's not the way I would have done it. It's not the way that you would, you would have done it, but it was the right way. And why was it the right way? Because God made it happen. And he always does things right. The Lord's promise was to give the kingdom of Israel over to David. After Saul blatantly disobeyed the direct command of God, Samuel tells him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. When Samuel anointed David, David was well aware that his anointing meant becoming king one day. Instead of handing over the kingdom right then and there, God worked through bringing difficult circumstances into David's life. David knew that God could easily make him king in that moment. But David also trusted that God would fulfill his promise in his timing, not in David's timing. 
And though I'm sure there really were times when David must have looked up and said, really? Really? Why do I have to flee from Saul once again? Why is everything working against me? Really, God? Are you not the all-powerful, sovereign, and providential God who can step in at any time and fix this? Why aren't you doing this? I'm sure that was there. But he also knew that God's ways, though they're mysterious, God's ways are sure. He knew that God would make him head over the Lord's people just as he promised, just not in the way maybe expected. See, the truth of this mystery and surety isn't isolated to David's life. God's ways in and through Christ, Jesus Christ, are just as mysterious and strange to us. Let's think about it. Why did God send Christ to earth as a baby? Why? Now, we can have theological conversations about it. There is scripture that talks about these things. But why not just have him show up in all his glory, judge everyone, inaugurate the coming of the new heaven and earth, and be done with it? But he doesn't. He sends the Savior as a baby who's reliant upon sinful human beings for life. Or why didn't Jesus just start his public ministry until the age of 30? Why not 20? Why not 25? Heck, why not 15? Why did his public ministry only last three years? Why not 20 years? Why not six months? Why did Jesus have to die such a gruesome death? Couldn't God have just done something else? Now, the Bible, again, does answer some of these questions, but my human mind says, sure, but why? Why, why this and why not that? Why do we have to ask a question and then say, well, but he didn't? God didn't do that. Why? I don't know, but he didn't do it. Why did Adam and Eve have to sin? Why did God wait 400 years before calling Israel out of Egypt? Why did he promise something to Abraham but not really fulfill it until generation upon generation upon generation later? Why did Paul and Peter and John and all the other disciples and the early Christians and even Christians today have to suffer so much for the sake of the gospel? Why did they have to die? And the answer for these questions is God's ways are mysterious. Because God doesn't always give us an answer. And yet sometimes he gives us the answer that we just don't really like. <laughs> really, God? Take the case of Job. Job suffers for no reason, really, other than what we read at the beginning of Job where Satan challenges God and says, look at Job, you just make him have to suffer, then he's going to curse you. And God says, okay, go ahead. Job doesn't know about this. He's never told this. And Job says, why, God? Why am I, why am I covered in boils? Why, is my, why are my children dead? Why is all my prosperity gone? Why, what is going on? And God says, who are you to talk to me like that? Were you there when the sun came up? What was it like to see the oceans created? 
his answer to Job was, I am God and you are not, in essence, because. Have we heard that from parents? Because? Yeah, he's the one who can say that and actually, you know, it's a good answer. Because I am God and you are not, and my ways are mysterious to you, but not to me. Like David, and like Christ, we can be rest assured of one thing. David trusted the Lord, did he not? He said, well, I'm going to let, I'm not going to kill Saul, I'm going to let God take care of that in his timing. Christ, he he stood back and he said, how many times in the New Testament, my time has not yet come. And he was tempted many times. Why don't you come to Jerusalem and set yourself up as king? And he said, my time has not yet come. It's not time yet. The father has not told me that it's time yet. So I'm going to stand back and I'm going to wait for God to move. Just like that, we can be sure of one thing. God's ways are always sure. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the way that he desires. David's path to the throne over God's people was messy. That's a very gentle way of saying it, by the way. But it was exactly as God had sovereignly and providentially ordained. Christ's path to the throne over God's people, the church, through the cross, through the grave, through the resurrected body, was certainly not the way that I would have done it. (laughs) But it was exactly as God had planned. And it was the best way to bring about Christ's kingship. So this is what... If you have your Bibles, if you've got your Bible app, turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul says about Christ. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 18, 18 through 20. This is Paul speaking of Christ. He says this, And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent above all things, all-powerful, first of all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, reconciliation, by the blood of his cross." See, Paul is saying Christ is the head of the church and making peace through him, making peace with God is possible only through Christ being on the cross, shedding his blood for those who believe. See, Christ was wounded and crushed for our sins for it was the will of God to crush him. Those aren't my words. That is Isaiah chapter 53. This is the Old Testament, Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, 5 through 12. Christ was wounded and he was crushed because it was the will of God to crush him on the cross. Like, well, how cruel is that? Why would God do such a thing to his only son? Why would God desire and such and will such a horrible thing? It was the only way to save his people. It was the only way. He wasn't cruel in it. He was filled with grace through it for us. And you can go even further that Christ says what in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
not my will be done, but yours. But God, if this cup could pass from me, please make it happen. In other words, if there's any other way than me to suffer and die and be crushed, can save your people, God, do that. But not my will, your will. I will follow you, which means Christ willingly sacrificed himself upon the cross to fulfill his father's will to save his people. And in doing so, Christ is now the king of the church. He's the head of the people of God. Through his blood, he made those who believe righteous in the eyes of God, restoring them to a right relationship with him. Bringing them peace, reconciling them to God, fixing what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So I ask again, how did you get here this morning? The path from birth to this second, how did you get here? See, the hand of God has been actively at work in everything that has happened to you from the moment of your birth to the moment right now. You see, God is not a passive God and he is not a passive Savior. He didn't create all of of creation and all of the universe just to stand back and see how it works out. He created it and now is moving actively behind the scenes most of the time, sometimes right in front of our face. But he's moving still. He's actively at work. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that God, and this is a quote, God predestined us, that is believers, people who believe and are saved, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of God's will to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, what he's saying is, if you're a believer, God has moved in your life to bring you to this point that through his son, Jesus Christ, God made known to us believers, the church, Sweet. All right. I'll just yell. All right. Where was I? All right. That through his son, Jesus Christ, God has made known to us, and this is a quote from Ephesians 1, 9, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. He has made known to us through Christ what his will is, the mystery of his will. Remember when I said his ways are mysterious. We don't fully grasp and understand every aspect of his will, but he does reveal parts of it. This is one of those things, the mystery of his will. How do I get in a right relationship with God? It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, we could talk about it, but let's be honest. He knows and you don't, I don't. Why would he do such a thing? I, I, 
other than just to his glorious praise to fulfill his purposes. That's what the Bible tells us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is the rest of that passage. He says this, And you, believers, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, that is, alienated from God, hostile to God, doing evil deeds, sinning against God, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, if Christ had not died, if he had not revealed himself through Jesus Christ and through the death of Jesus Christ, we would still be alienated we would still be hostile in mind in the way that we think about God. We would be his enemies and we would be doing sinful, disobedient rebellion against him. If Christ had not done what he did. But he did. He did do what he did. He did it. Just as his father said should happen. Christ has reconciled to those who believe in him, those who are faithful to him, and as verse 23, which I didn't read, says to those who are steadfast in their faith and their trust in him. In other words, continuing to trust him, even though they go, why? And he doesn't answer. I have faith in you, God, that you're going to work this out the way that you need to work it out. Because otherwise, I'm going to fall apart. Because I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Why would you save a sinner like me? I'm your enemy. Why would you die for me? I don't. No, I don't get it other than just to bring glory to yourself. And so I'll trust that what you say you're going to do, you're going to do. He brought you here this morning. You see, God's hand is at work in David's life, was at work in David's life. He was at work through Christ in his life. He is at work in your life right at this moment. He brought you here this morning. Maybe to hear the plan of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ for the first time or maybe the hundredth time. And maybe today is the day that you will finally believe that he will soften your heart to receive that message to say, I cannot do anything in and of myself to save myself and reconcile my relationship with you, God. I need to trust you. Your word says, trust in your son that he shed his blood for me, I believe. And God says, if you confess and you believe, you will be saved. Or perhaps you're here to be reminded you are a child of God. See, in Romans, Paul, Paul says the gospel, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is so that you may have faith. You hear the gospel, you believe. But that passage also infers if you are a believer, you need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, not to save you, but to remind you who you are. Who remind you, who's, who's my God? Who is my Savior? Who am I? I am adopted by God. And guess what? That adoption can never be annulled. So whatever happens, whatever is brought my way, whatever life brings, I trust that I am his 
child and I'm reminded that my identity is found in him, not in the things of this world, not in my own feelings, not in my failures, and not even in my successes. As a child of God, I am a child of God, not a child of Mark. Not a child of Elm Creek, not a child of this world. I am a child of him. So if you're in that place, if you're a believer, and you need to hear this. God has saved you by the blood of his son, never to be removed from his gracious love, never be to be abandoned by God. His ways are mysterious. His ways are mysterious. And yet his ways are always sure. So let this time at the table this morning when we take communion, Christ says, why do we do this? He says, do this in remembrance of me. That's not a, an emotional, I mean, it's, emotion is there, but it's not this emotional ritual that, okay, I just gotta, I gotta remember. I gotta remember because if I remember, then I'm gonna be saved. No, he's saying, if you are my child, remember who you are and remember what I did for you and give me the praise and glory and honor and say, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me. And I, I didn't have to save myself because I could not save myself. Remember who you are in Christ. Let this be a reminder. Christ is the head of the church. He is your king. He is your Lord. It's not bad to bow down to the king of all creation. It is not bad. It is glorious. It is wonderful. It is peace-giving. Christ was made head of the church. He was placed on the throne just as God willed and just as God promised. And so if you are a child, use this time to glorify him, to praise him and say, thank you, Jesus. If you're not a believer, then we ask that you refrain from joining us in this. This is something serious. There's nothing magical about this. This doesn't save us. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. You need to be a child of God. But if you're not a child of God, if you have not put your faith in him, how can you truly remember the sacrifice? Too easily then it just becomes this ritual that you do, hoping that everything's going to be okay. God will be happy because I took communion every three weeks at Elm Creek Community Church. That's not what this is for. This is Jesus saying to his disciples, to his children saying, remember me, remember what I have done. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if you cannot say that with authenticity, then we ask that you refrain. We're not gonna hold it against you. We don't have somebody walking around seeing who's not giving communion. We don't have communion police, you know, asking you to show your credentials before you come to the table. This is between you and God. And we ask that you, not, one, take it seriously, but two, then use this as an opportunity. God brought you here this morning, if you, if you have not given your faith to Christ, to remind you who he is, to hear the gospel message one more time. And we, we beg you, I beg you, do not reject that. Don't reject that message. Believe. Believe and you will be saved. So when you are ready, you can start in the back, come to the table. 
grab a cup, grab the bread, sit down, and then as a family, as children of God together, as a family, we will take communion and remembrance of our Savior Jesus Christ. So come when you are ready.